Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Two weeks ago, I preached to you on the rebuilding of the temple, and I springboard from that sermon into what I'm going to share with you today, because we... We learned from that uh, sermon a couple of weeks ago the presence of the temple. Solomon built the temple. Uh, it was destroyed. Uh, Zerubbabel came and had the, uh, the orders to rebuild the temple. And the presence of God was manifested in the temples. And then Herod remodeled Zerubbabel's temple uh, just in, in years before the days that Christ walked upon the earth and, and really beautified the structure. And the Jews were once again very proud of their temple. As a matter of fact, in the 24th chapter of Matthew, uh, they came in, uh, unto Jesus and says, uh, what do you think of our temple? You know, tell us, brag on our temple a little bit. We're, we're, we're really proud of this. And Jesus had a really strange response to it. He said... Uh, uh, there shall not be left one stone upon another. And you, you talk about raining on somebody's parade. They're wanting to brag on their beautiful temple, and he gave a prophecy that it, they'd understood it was going to be massive destruction of this temple too. Well, they lost Solomon's temple, and uh, now they're going to lose uh, Zerubbabel, Herod's temple. And it prompted them to ask this question in the 24th chapter of Matthew, this three-part question. Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the signs of the coming and of the end of the world? Uh, because they got real interested. What is this about destroying the temple? You remember whenever Jesus was uh, brought on trial, that one of the charges they trumped up against him was he had said, tear this temple down, and in three days I will rebuild it. And he was speaking of his body. He was prophetically speaking, if you kill me, in three days I will rise again. Of, uh, of course, the leaders were searching for and grasping for anything they could to bring charges against this man, so they created this, this other meaning to what he said. They said, well, he says that uh, he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And it was all a farce. It wasn't at all what he said. But it all centered around the temple. And then in 70 AD, uh, as the Romans rolled through Jerusalem and destroyed that temple, today the Jews don't have a temple. They haven't had a temple since that time. It's been a long stretch, and we often hear people talking about it in the end days, speculating that Jews have an interest in rebuilding their temple. I wouldn't know why they would not have an interest in doing that. Uh, we do know that there seem to be some complications in that happening because there seems to be a dispute over the temple site. Uh, some believe that the site of that temple is now occupied by the uh, Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar, uh, which is uh, Muslim-controlled. And in order for there to be a temple on that location, if that's where they want to build it, there's going to have to be some kind of conflict. Maybe that's going to happen like that. We don't know. That's all futuristic. 
But do the Jews want another temple? Perhaps they do. If they build another temple, you will probably look at them trying to reinstitute some sacrificial system. But see, the significant thing about it is they didn't need a sacrificial system anymore, so they didn't need a temple anymore. Because Jesus became the Lamb of God that was sacrificed for all. Therefore, they didn't need these, these sacrifice animals and the, the annual sacrifice of the Lamb. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world that all might be saved. He's taken care of that. They didn't need the temple. But what happened to the temple? What happened to the presence of God? What happened to the presence that filled the temple whenever Solomon made that dedication to the temple and the presence became so great in that temple, the Bible says the priests could not even execute their work. What happened to that Shekinah, that glory cloud that filled the temple? What happened to that? If the temple's gone, is the presence of God gone? My sermon today, I'm talking about people of God's presence and people of the Spirit. As we look at those things, I'm trying to tie in my previous message to today's message. What happened to the temple? What happened to the presence of God? First, I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. And just a, a, a few words to clarify who the Sp Holy Spirit is. He is so underappreciated and so misunderstood, even by Christians. First of all, we have his name. In the Old Testament, the name Holy Spirit, the full name Holy Spirit, is only used two times by the writers. It's usually the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, the full designation. One of them you're familiar with probably, Psalm 51. David cried out and said, Do not cast me from the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's one of only two times. Holy Spirit, the name, not, not in reference to him as a being, but just the name is used. And then Isaiah wrote, and he said in the 63rd chapter, they rebelled and grieved God's Holy Spirit. Now you get to the New Testament, and you see the name Holy Spirit many times. That's, that's his New Testament name, if you would, if that's the way you would like to think of that. And if you have a King James Version, you will see the word, the name, the title, Holy Ghost. And some people have innocently and sincerely asked the question, what is the difference between the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit? And it, technically, there is no difference. It's just the way that King James men translated that. Now, here's an interesting bit of information. The King James men, in, in, in their day, when they translated this into Holy Ghost, they, they could have chosen Holy Spirit, but they chose Holy Ghost. Now, get this. Because the word spirit was associated with something that they did not want an association with. So they said, ghost is better. Because we don't want to make the Holy Spirit a spirit which had a, 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 a strange, weird connotation to it. Now, have we not flip-flopped since that time? In this day and age, is ghost not a little more uh, curious of a term than spirit? So see, it's, it's not the kind of thing where it matters, but we have begun now to change translations and not refer to, so much to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost as we used to. Unless you're in a Pentecostal church and they always have Holy Ghost revivals. They never have Holy Spirit revivals. Because that has come to be kind of a, a part of the terminology of uh, the, the Pentecostal world, the Pentecostal church world. But it doesn't make any difference. Both are equivalent. But if we were to use the term Holy Ghost outside of the church, 
people would probably not grasp the true value and, and the holiness and sanctity of the Holy Spirit that we want to because they would focus on the word ghost. So we, we communicate more in softer terms, just like King James men chose to do in their day and age, and we, we probably refer more to the Holy Spirit so people are not quite as confused by who is this being that we're talking about. Now, he is personal. As a member of the Godhead, Jesus is personal, God the Father is personal, and the Holy Spirit is personal. <coughs> when we refer to the Father, we, the, the, the first person of the Trinity, refer to God the Father. That's a family term. So we identify with God the Father, and we marvel at him being our Father. If you had a good Father here on earth, chances are you can understand and comprehend what it means to have a good Father in heaven. Unfortunately, if you had a rotten father here on earth, it's difficult for people to connect with the fact they have a heavenly father that's not equally as rotten as yours. And people have struggled with getting by that thinking of God the Father when they had such a terrible experience with their earthly father. Now, when you think of Jesus, he's the son. We know that we as children of God, if Jesus is the son of God, that makes us his brothers and his sisters. So we have this family relationship. God the Father, God the Son. I can relate to a brother. I can relate to a father. And we have the Holy Spirit, but we're missing that familial connection. Not my father, not my brother. He's the Spirit. So somehow we feel less connected to the Holy Spirit because we don't have a family name connecting him to us. And it's unfortunate that that happens because we make him less of a person unless we intentionally remember he is a personal member of the Trinity. So sometimes we, even Christians, get to viewing the Holy Spirit as mysterious and almost, almost treat him as a star the force. We talk probably sometimes more about his power than we do about him. And if you catch yourself sometimes depersonalizing, well, well, you've got to understand in depersonalizing the Holy Spirit, it doesn't help that in the Bible we have emblems symbolizing the Holy Spirit that water, fire, wind, oil, and a dove. Those are, are things. And it doesn't help in, in trying to attach a personality to the Holy Spirit to have the, all of the symbols be items and things and objects. So that's a count against our ability to give the Holy Spirit a personality. None of those things re- reinforce how personal he is. And then we often use the words power and the Holy Spirit interchangeably. And no wonder we tend to think of him more like the force than the personal entity that he truly is. And one gospel song from the recent past, written by Jaron Davis, who who wrote the beautiful song, uh, Standing on Holy Ground. Beautiful, beautiful song. But he wrote another song that, that became very popular. It said, send it on down, send it on down, let the Holy Ghost come on down. Now, the problem we have with that is, is he has called the Holy Ghost it. But we do that erroneously. 
Try very carefully to watch your language. When referring to the Holy Spirit, not to call him it. And sometimes when I'm referring to the Holy Spirit, I might say it because I'm referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. But I have to, I, I try to be very cautious not to be that vague or that sloppy in conveying the Holy Spirit. Him. Holy Spirit, Him. He is personal. Then there was an old song from Pentecost. How many of you here today go back in old time Pentecost? May I see your hands? Old time Pentecost. Yeah, we've got a dozen here. Old time Pentecost. Well, here's, here's a, a chorus from uh, old time Pentecost. It's real, it's real. I know it's real. It's the Pentecostal power, and I know, I know it's real. Well, that, uh, grammatically, that's correct. But once again, we find ourselves singing more about the power than the person. And we in Pentecost have been guilty of celebrating what he does more than who he is. Try that in your relationship. Try that in your marriage. Try spending all of your time talking about what your spouse does and how wonderful that is instead of ever talking about your spouse and how wonderful he is or she is. I mean, if I came here and said, my wife and I are married and I carried on about her cooking forever, I would never convey to you what she as a person means to me. I would only tell you what she does. So in the same way, we want to be cautious to express the personality of the Holy Spirit and our regard for that. The power is not personal. The power is this commodity. The Holy Spirit is the person. And sometimes we tend to think more of the gift than we do the giver of the gift. We objectify the Holy Spirit. We think of the Father and the Son in relational terms, but think of the Holy Spirit in experiential terms, like I felt the Holy Spirit. How many times have you who have been in Pentecost heard somebody say, Woo, did you feel that? See how objectively we constantly refer to that? Did you feel that? Well, was that the Holy Spirit? Well, he wasn't of that, if that was the Holy Spirit. Or if you were referring to the power, why are we once again talking about just the things he does rather than here he is, he is here, he is real. So we really, we're going to have to really work on retraining ourselves to bring the personality back to the Holy Spirit because I think it's important. If we want to be a Holy Spirit church then we should make every effort to re-personify the Holy Spirit and not just concentrate on power and experiences, but concentrate on worshiping Him as God, just like we worship and appreciate and adore Jesus Christ as the Son of God and God the Father and worship Him and the Holy Spirit and worship and adore Him. I think He would appreciate that, wouldn't you? Christ became incarnate. And Jesus said of Christ, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of God. And then Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And these all help us to relate to God the Father and God the Son. And still, we feel a little bit left in the dark about what about the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus didn't say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Holy Spirit. So that's the reason we tend to still be a little mystified by this. 
But there's abundant proof in Scripture of the personhood of the Holy Spirit, which I will not take time to go into today because it's in entirely too much evidence. But I can point you to one uh, passage of Scripture in particular, Romans 8, 26 and 27, which precedes the famous passage in Romans 8, 28 about in all things uh, God works for the good of those that love him. But it says in those preceding verses, in the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, my question to you, this is not tongues. This is the Holy Spirit that is praying through you with groans. You are so at a loss for what to say before God. And I don't know how many of you have ever been there in trying to pray to God. But you know praying is hard work. Unless you have the gift of gab, that translates really well into praying long. But unless you have the gift of gab, you run out of unique things to say when you pray. You get down, down and you pray, you pray up a storm for about 10 minutes, and after that you're thinking, what else can I say? But you know what the beautiful thing about it is? You don't have to think of anything else to say because there's something in your heart that's longing to connect with God that maybe all you can do is just groan before God and allow the Holy Spirit to then begin to communicate through you because he's that agent that connects you to the Father that when you come, and some of you have been so burdened, so heavy, you know you need to pray. You know you need prayer, but when you get down, you don't have anything to say. Don't worry about it. We got this covered. Because if you're just in God's presence, the Holy Spirit, and all you can muster is just, ugh, mm. oh, that translates into things that God understands in your pain. And the Holy Spirit is praying even when you can't. That is the power of the Holy Spirit available to us. And I've had people come sometimes with such complications in their life, and they say, Pastor, will you pray for me? And I'll tell you, it is so messed up, I don't even know where to begin to start praying. It's like you have to fashion a prayer that somehow puts together a plan. You ever done that before? What they're asking me to do is pray a plan here, and I don't have any plan for you. You know, how many of you realize that one of the most articulate Meaningful prayers that you could ever pray is help. It says it all. You didn't have to tell God the problem. He knew the problem. You didn't have to describe how it came about. He knew that. You're just crying out, help God. And God understands that and the Holy Spirit enhances that. So we make it clear in this first point, and, and keying off this passage I just read, that the 27th verse, let me finish that one. He who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. All you have to do is surrender to the will of God. And just stand before him and say, I don't know what to say. But I hope the Holy Spirit understands that I'm crying out. God, I need you. And he will pray the most articulate, beautiful, appropriate prayer. Because he who searches the heart, that's Jesus. 
That's not the spirit. He who searches the heart knows the mind of the spirit. And the spirit knows what's going on in your life. So you've got this communication with God that it really takes it up to another level. Do you realize, do you realize there's nobody else in the world but the people of God that have this available to them? Nobody. That is a level of interaction and connection with God that is unique to the people of God. Now I ask this question to move us on to the second point. What happened to the temple? What happened to the presence of God? Since the presence of God in the Old Testament was designated by the pillar of the cloud and the pillar of fire that followed the children of Israel through the wilderness... When they built the temple, it was typified by the cloud that came down and filled the temple. The presence of God. Where they were, they were just, they were flattened in his presence. It was, it was phenomenal. And we've got the, uh, the temple's gone. And we're concerned, without a temple... Can we ever have the presence of God? Well, I I know as a mature Christian, you're way ahead of me. Of course we can. But if I lay this out just step by step, maybe it'll bring us a new appreciation of what it means to really have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit available to us. Two times in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he uses the metaphor of the temple. And the first time he uses it, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself because I don't want to lose you. Connect with this. The first time he uses it is in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. The second time he uses it is in the sixth chapter of Corinthians. And the first time he uses it, he says, don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? And he who destroys this temple, him will God destroy. Now, how many of you have remembered reading that or hearing that? Of course you have. The second time he uses it is in the sixth chapter where he talks about them being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those are two distinct applications he makes with reference to using the metaphor of the temple. They are not the same. And I'm going to deal with the one in the third chapter first, whenever he says in the 16th verse, Know you not, you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, if you would need to go back and read 1 Corinthians, and I've mentioned this before in one of my sermons, you would discover, if if you keep your mind open and you listen to the direction I'm giving you, you would discover that Paul is talking to the Corinthian congregation. He's not addressing an individual He's addressing the congregation. They, he's already addressed the fact that they're, they're bickering over silly things. Some of them are, are bragging, well, we're followers of Paul. We're followers of Apollos. And, and uh, Paul is saying you're, you're becoming sectarian. You're dividing yourselves and thinking that if you follow this preacher, you're better than that preacher. And, and he says, uh, uh, you know, I'm glad I wasn't involved in baptizing you people. You'd be divided over that too. And he's talking about the congregation that was in the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was a, a, a wicked place. There were, there were shrines and temples, uh, almost like Walgreens uh, in, in Corinth. They were on every corner. This was a city that was full of different kinds of religions. And the Corinth church was just one 
religion amongst these myriads of other idolatrous goddess religions. They were just numerically a small player. But they had been strategically located as a light in darkness. How were they ever going to succeed? From a business model, it doesn't look good. You go into a place that is already saturated with temples and religions, and you're going to start another one. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look wise. Go someplace where they don't have any religious product and try it there. But see, this wasn't just a religious product. This was light penetrating darkness. The other temples, the other religions were filled with darkness. They did not know God. They did not understand the message of Jesus Christ. They did not have the power of the Holy Spirit. So here is this congregation that's been planted there. And rather than being a light to their community, they are disintegrating from within because of the attitudes and the inquarrelings that they are having. And Paul says to them, he says to the congregation, knock it off. Don't you understand? You, Corinthian church, you, Corinthian congregation, you are supposed to be the temple. And when he uses that temple, they understand the contrast between that church and all the other godless temples in the city of Corinth. He says, you are the sole temple of the Holy Spirit. And then he says to the congregation, anybody who tears up this temple, God will destroy you. That's what he says to the church. Any person who tears the church up has to deal with God. Now, I can tell you in the eight years I've been here at Westside, we haven't had a lot of people trying to tear this church up. I'm grateful that we're not putting out those kind of fires. I'm grateful that we have a happy congregation. I'm grateful we don't have this infighting. I, as a pastor, come here without ulcers. Bless you, people. This is a happy place to be. I don't dread walking into a firestorm every time I come to church. I enjoy being in the presence of my brothers and sisters who just want to come love God. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We're happy. But I have been in churches when it appears as though the actions of some people were bent to destroy and tear and rip and they would rather be right as to have a church that was whole and undivided. And the words that come from Paul to this Corinthian church is you're tearing the church up and God doesn't take that lightly. Obviously, when Paul said you are the temple of God, the spirit dwells in you as contrasted to the pagan temples that were around them. Obviously, Paul was not just talking about a building. But he was talking about a gathering of God's people. We're a gathering of God's people here today. So if it has any application at all, it means if we've gathered here in the name of God today and we've kept the right spirit, that we have become the habitation of the Holy Spirit. We today have become the temple where the Holy Spirit likes to dwell. He wants to be here He wants to go where he's invited. He wants to go where he's welcomed. And I think we've made him welcome here today. He's here. He's here in all of his power, in all of his glory. He's here because the Bible tells me if we are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in the temple of God. So we have to watch what we say. 
We will have to watch what we do. It should keep our language right. It should keep our thoughts pure. It should keep our attitudes holy. Because the design and the purpose of God is to find a church where the Holy Spirit is willing to be. And I don't want to be the one that discourages him or drives him out. I don't want the one to be where he comes and says, I, I, I can't even find a place to get in here. It's all about them. Well, it's not all about them. God, it's all about you. God, it's all about your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, indwell this place. Remove those carnal things that keep you from moving freely in our midst. May we have the moving and the power of the Holy Spirit and His sweet presence here today that whenever we begin to worship, we worship not only thinking God the Father and God the Son, but praise to God the Holy Spirit. It's humbling to think that we become the habitation of the Holy Spirit by our presence here today. We learned that whenever Solomon's temple was destroyed, the people wanted to rebuild a temple. Without a temple, they felt they lacked the presence of God. So God said, build it again. And much of Christ's ministry took place in and around the temple that existed in those days, the second temple. But Jesus Christ ministered in and around the temple, and the power of God was there. But the temple's gone. And the Roman armies can roll through Jerusalem and they can destroy the temple and they can take away the hope of the Jews that without a temple, how will we ever feel the presence of God? But there's not an army in the world that can roll through and knock down, they can knock down every church building in the world. They can, they can flatten them. But they can't knock down the temple of God because Jesus said up on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And wherever God's people are gathered together, God said, there I will be in the midst of you. You can make a temple with two people. You can make a temple with three people because they can get rid of the building, but they can't get rid of the temple because it's enduring. We are the temple of God. So there's four things we can deduce from this first passage. And that, uh, number one, is the Holy Spirit is the presence of God among the people here on earth. Number two, whereas the Spirit once filled the temple in the Old Testament, the temple is now gone. Number three, the church is the new temple. And the Holy Spirit will dwell in the church. Number four, God will deal severely with anybody who tries to destroy the church. These four points should be sobering to us. Now, God chose a less formal temple in the New Testament of believers, but he's no less concerned for that temple. We can look back on Christ's attitude toward the money changers in the physical temple in that day, in the temple courts, and Christ's protective of his father's house. He was unwilling to allow thievery and corruption to creep into the temple. It's noteworthy that the only record we have of Christ getting physically aggressive was the, over the issue of defiling the temple. Never again do we see him fashioning a whip and going after physically ready to assault people, confronting them. He was angry that they were defiling the temple. Well, the temple doesn't exist anymore, but I'm telling you, God's watching over his church. He's watching over those who will try to divide and destroy then there's a second reference to the temple in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And Paul talks about 
the individual, you, not, not the congregation anymore, you, you individuals. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And before making this, this statement about you, you individual, you single Christian, you follower of God, before he makes that issue, he, he addresses, he switches from addressing the issues of the church as a whole and now starts in addressing in the issues of the individual believers. The first issue he deals with in leading up to this, he says to these people in that sixth chapter, he says, now what, what is this I hear about you people having a disagreement in church among believers? And you decide to go to the secular courts and have them settle your differences. He says, don't you understand that you one day are going to judge angels? What is it you're going to the world? You are the temple. The Holy Spirit's dwelling in you and you can't resolve your problems? You know what that means? It means straightforward, some of you what Paul's saying to them, are not connected to the Holy Spirit like you ought to be. Because if you're plugged into the Holy Spirit, you won't have to go to the courts. He said, wouldn't it be better for you to be wronged? You can be wronged through the power of the Holy Spirit rather than thinking, I have to be right. And I don't care what I tear up and what I destroy, I'm going to be right. I remember the story of a man who studied so hard to become a doctor. He wanted to help make people well. And after he became a doctor and practiced for a while, he went back to school and became an attorney. And somebody asked him, why did you change from being a doctor to being an attorney? He said, I found out people would rather be right than to be well. Sometimes we destroy ourselves. We'd rather be right. We don't care what we tear up. So Paul is saying to these individuals, he said, don't take your matters to unbelievers. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You can resolve this. The Holy Spirit is there to see you through this. And then Paul's rationale for resolving these things among themselves rather than going to the world is that he says wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words... They already have their punishment. If, if you've been done wrong, what more do you want? If they're a wrongdoer and they've done wrong, they don't have any part of the kingdom, what else can you do to them? That's the worst thing that can happen to them. What do you want to do? Go sue them as well? Now you're both wrong. That's a no-win situation for everybody. And then Paul moves quickly to list several sins when he says wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom. Then he throws in a little list here. And he says, here's a few more sins that will disqualify people from inheriting the kingdom. They are sexual immorality, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, slanderers, and that's not an exhaustive list. You can't go there and say, well, he didn't list anything else, therefore I can get away with something. He's just listing a few things. He said, these are the kind of things that wrongdoers do that they cannot inherit the kingdom. But then he zeroes in a little bit closer. 
on the subject of sexual immorality. He picks one out of that list. He said, now let me press it a little bit closer. And he says, here's two faulty philosophies of the carnal person. First of all, he says, you, he says uh, you say, I have the right to do anything. But he says, you know what? I found out not, not everything is beneficial. That's his answer. People, now you, you have to understand, in this New Testament covenant that we have, remember all the laws and the rituals and the regulations of the Old Testament? Aren't you glad we aren't under that stuff anymore? It's gone. It's, it's a much more simplified system. We don't have a list of rules. Now, Paul, and in his writings, can list you to things that people do who are immoral, but we don't have this list of rules, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. It boils down very simply. We do away with the temple. We do away with all the laws and the regulations. And you're going to live by the one code. And I've told you this many times in recent sermons. Love the Lord of God with all your heart. Love him with everything within you. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Holy Spirit to dwell with us to help us to live up to those two things. And not this big list of rules that we have to live by to please God. So it's all been simplified. So you got this group of people that says, ah, no rules. This can be real handy. And they are the ones that Paul says, well, you say, I'm free to do anything I want. There aren't any rules against it. And Paul said, but let's use a little wisdom here. Not everything you do is beneficial for you. So therefore, you have to use some wisdom, saying, well, the Bible doesn't prohibit me. And you know how many people today, when you're talking about some kind of habits that people have, we've always associated with being maybe ungodly habits. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about. You see, they're missing the point. What's the Holy Spirit say about it? What does wisdom say about it? You know, you, if you're tuned into the Holy Spirit, you don't have to go find it black and white in the Bible to know that the Holy Spirit is grieved by some of the things we do and say. Just because you can't find it in black and white in the Bible doesn't mean you're free. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, first of all, you say, I have a right to do anything. The second thing is he says you, you expand that thought and you say food for the stomach and stomach for food. And in the end, God will destroy both. That is a carnal philosophy that they were living by. And let me translate that into how they expanded that philosophy out. Let me see now. Food was made for the stomach. Stomach was made for food. You just eat it because that's the natural order of things. And then it just all goes out in the end, and it's, it, 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 it's, that's, just, that's just nature. That's just it. So eat and be happy because everything's made for that. Now they take it to the next level, and they say, sex is for the body, and the body is for sex, so just enjoy it all. That's where they went with this. Because the next thing that Paul said is, don't you know, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that whenever you join your body to that of a prostitute, you are uniting yourself with her body. You're becoming as one. But you already have declared yourself to be one with God. You cannot be one with the prostitute and one with God. That's two. You can't be divided in your allegiance. So he's leading this from this carnal philosophy. You just do this food for the stomach, stomach for food. Do what comes naturally. So they're thinking, 
all the sexual activity, it's natural. I have this appetite. God created me with this appetite. And it's, it's, it, it, sex was made for my appetite, and my appetite was made for sex. So this is all good. And that's when Paul reminds them on a personal level, don't you know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, your bodies, not the congregation. We've already established that. Now he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that brings it so much closer to home. Young person, God wants your body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the enemy wants to defile you and make it a place of every unclean thing, the habitation of every unclean thought and every unclean act. But Paul is making his case. God wants your body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God. Then he says this, which is different from the first time he uses this metaphor. He said, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And therefore the conclusion is, honor God with your body. And you can't do that if you're yielding to all of the cravings and all of the urgings. And that's part of what the problem we have today with people trying to make the case for for redefining marriage and redefining sexual relationships. It's all based on what they feel like and what they want and their urges. And one of the most fundamental truths of Scripture is it's not about your urges. It's about you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you can't do everything you want to do and you can't eat all the food you want to eat and you can't have all the sex you want to have with random people because that's not God's plan. So there's two levels in which we should consider the presence of God among us. First, the presence of God in us as a church. And second, the presence of God in us as an individual believer. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer's life. So the believer must live his or her life in such a way that it brings honor to God. A great price was paid for each one of us. We are obligated, therefore, because of the price that is paid, because the body that does not belong to us, just to do as we want with all of our cravings, now to dedicate it to God. We have an obligation, therefore, to honor God in our body. And the next time, sir, and the next time, lady, you are tempted to do the wrong thing, to say the wrong thing, to participate in the wrong thing, to put that drug in your body, to lift that bottle to your lips. The next time you are tempted to do that wrong, would you remember this? Would you remember your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit that you've received from God? Honor Him with your body and ask yourself, can I do this and honor God? Not can I do it and get away with it, but can I do it and stand before God and say, God, didn't I honor you? Or did I dishonor you? Can we come to a fresh appreciation of the presence of God, not only in our church, but in our lives? My final summary paragraph is this. The Holy Spirit is the means by which God brings his presence among us. The two temples that the Holy Spirit chooses to to indwell is the church and us personally, so we can have personal communion with him. The Holy Spirit empowers both the church and us personally to influence this world and to carry out the great commission for the Lord. 
as the church, we can experience God's presence in corporate worship in special ways that only the church can experience. And as believers, individual believers, we can find the strength and the comfort and the peace of the Holy Spirit in our lives that please God to finish our journey. His presence is vital. And I've preached this because I believe with all my heart that we need to be crying out for a stronger presence of the Holy Spirit in our church and in our lives. Because I think if we don't keep our focus on that, we go dry. As we said before, our focus is not so much are we going to be Pentecostal. Our focus is are we going to be people of the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit can indwell this church, then I think every one of us have a right to anticipate having a God encounter every Sunday that we come here. To feel like you've been in the warm shower of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when you left, you feel clean. You feel holy. You feel pure. You feel the presence of God. I don't want you to just come here and go through the motions and go home and say, well, that's out of the way. What do we do next? I want you to have a God encounter. And we can do that by realizing the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the little temple you take with you Take the Holy Spirit with you in that temple. Watch what you think. Watch what you see. Watch what you say. And pray afresh, God, teach me to walk in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Would you bow your heads?